This is Our American Stories, and Americans are expected to spend over $9 billion this year on Halloween, making it the second biggest commercial holiday behind only Christmas. More than half of American homes will be decorated on Halloween, and practically every American child will carve a pumpkin and go trick-or-treating. And no Halloween would be complete without a costume party or a visit to your local haunted house filled with ghouls and ghosts and plenty of staged blood. Today, we're going to bring to light the stories that have been hiding in the dark, answering the question, why do we do these strange things every Halloween? Brayden, go up there and say trick-or-treat. Trick-or-treat! Oh, there you go. What do you say? You're welcome. How do we describe Halloween without sounding insane? Mass children come to our doors and threaten us with a trick if we don't give them a treat. But why do we do this? And why do we carve faces into pumpkins, then light the candles inside? And why do we adorn our houses with coffins and tombstones? The truth is, we take great pleasure in scaring ourselves to death. This impulse is ancient. And so are our treasured Halloween traditions. Here's Talk Thompson, who teaches a ghost story seminar at USC. And its ancient origins go back to the old Celtic calendar. And the old Celtic tribe divided the year between a light half and a dark half. And uh, Samhain, their ancient holiday, was a precursor to our Halloween. It was the beginning of the dark half. Centuries before Christ, A tribe of warriors called the Celts celebrated their Samhain festival with bonfires on the night of October 31st across most of Europe and throughout the British Isles. The Samhain harvest represented the transition from the summer to the winter, and they were at the mercy of the elements. For these ancient peoples, it was a matter of life and death, and winter was the scariest season of them all. But the Celts believed there was even more to Samhain. Here's Leslie Bannatyne, author of Halloween Nation. It was a bit of a warning. You know, it's going to get cold and dark. Gather together, come home, and don't send anybody out alone in the dark. Here's USC history professor Lisa Biddle and Halloween historian David Skall. What marked Samhain and this transition from light to dark was that time and space became permeable, flexible. And so that spirits not only of the dead, but of the past or of other realities could sort of wander into our reality and humans could wander out and get lost in the other world as well. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest and the living and the dead could commingle. And that's at the the root of all the Halloween celebrations. On Samhain night only, the Celts believed those who had died in the past year walked the earth once more. But not every visiting ghost was friendly. So the Celts devised ways to appease these spirits. Here's professor of religion at Princeton University, Elaine Pagels comes from this very archaic sense that the dead return. You have to placate them, you have to do something with them, or they might might return and stay, they might trouble you and, you know, haunt you in various ways. 
To appease these spirits, the Celts would parade out to the edge of their villages with offerings of food and sweets as gifts for the dead, trying to coax the evil forces away from their homes. Here's Jack Santino, author of Halloween, Death and Life. The belief in death, the belief in the wandering spirits, the idea of dressing up in costumes and being allowed to perform mischief and pranks much as supernatural creatures would. Much of our contemporary Halloween traditions seem to be reflected in this ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. The truth is, we know very little about Samhain. But what we do know is that their bonfires drew one familiar icon, the bat. In older times, people had bonfires on Halloween. Mosquitoes attracted to the bonfires and the bats attracted to the mosquitoes and probably the owls. Um, So you could see them flying over the Halloween bonfires and they became associated with the holiday. How did these ancient traditions survive into our modern era? They were preserved by the Catholic Church. By the 7th century, the Catholic Church had spread throughout most of Europe. Missionaries, including St. Patrick, who would become the patron saint of Ireland, had successfully converted the pagan Celts. The church had found that conversion was far more successful when attempts were made to offer clear alternatives to existing calendar celebrations, rather than simply stamping them out. It was a tactic used under Pope Gregory I to convert more pagans. He said, if you should come across a group of people worshipping a tree, said rather than cut the tree down and tell them that they were ignorant and in error, said instead, consecrate it to Christ and tell them to keep meeting as they were accustomed to meeting at the same spot. A key pagan festival destined to get a Catholic makeover was Lemuria, a Roman festival of the dead on May 13th where they performed rites to exorcise the malevolent and fearful ghosts from their graves. Here's Brown University professor of Roman history, Nicola Lewis. Of all the different days that they have in the Roman calendar to celebrate the dead, it was the spookiest. So on the Lemuria, what are called the larvae, the ghosts of the departed would come up um, and haunt people. The church co-opted Lemuria in 609, turning May 13th into what they called All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, the word hallow being equivalent to saint. All Hallows Day honored the most holy of dead Catholics, those saints who attained heaven. All Hallows Day was such a success that church leaders made a decision to drain the life out of Samhain. So, they moved All Hallows' Day from May 13th to November 1st. Because of this move, people started calling Samhain All Hallows' Evening because it was the evening before All Hallows' Day. And this quickly shortened into All Hallows' Eve and finally into Halloween. And when we come back, more on the story of how Halloween came to be. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Greg Hengler and his piece on how Halloween came to be. People continued to dress in straw costumes or in animal skins, continued to put out offerings for the souls of the dead who were traveling at that particular time, continued to do much of what they had been accustomed to doing, but now doing it under the name of Halloween rather than under the name of Samhain. And then, to be safe, in the 10th century, the Catholic Church went one step further, adding a holiday to not just honor the saints in heaven, but all Catholics who died and had yet to reach heaven. So November 2nd became All Souls Day. In Mexico, this day is called the Day of the Dead. It's a blend of Spanish Catholic influences mixed with pre-existing pagan Indian elements. This is real important for Halloween because this is where Halloween gets its association with dead souls, death, and the supernatural again. The Catholic Church also established the tradition of trick-or-treating. It all started in the Middle Ages on All Souls Day when priests told church members to pray for souls trapped between heaven and hell in an intermediate world they call purgatory or final purification. Purgatory is not a pleasant place. It's not hell. It's not as bad as hell is, but it's still probably pretty fiery. Souls are kind of suffering there. Luckily, there is something that you could do. You could offer up prayers for them. So how do souls get out of purgatory? According to the church, if enough prayers were offered, a soul would be released up to heaven. Because of this, children would go souling, begging for soul cakes, which were spiced cakes filled with raisins. In return for these treats, the children and some adults would offer up prayers for souls trapped in purgatory. While this forerunner to trick-or-treat became a preoccupation for the medieval church, so did another future essential of Halloween, witches. Here's historian Steve Gillen. It made perfect sense for people in medieval times to believe that there were demons and witches. And if there were demons and witches and they were responsible for bad things in the world, it made sense that you hunt them down and you kill them. That was their worldview. A witch panic that climaxed in the late 16th century established the look of the character. Almost always a woman, witches were seen as the devil's handmaiden bent on evil and destruction. Here's Lisa Morton, author of the fascinating book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And a lot of the symbols that were associated with these women, who probably often lived alone, uh, may have been somewhat eccentric, of course, end up becoming associated with witches. In 1486, Pope Innocent VIII published a book claiming a direct link between witchcraft and the devil. He then outlawed the pagan Celtic religion altogether. Over time, Even the practical cooking tools used by all acquired sinister dimensions and became model Halloween icons, thanks to witches. Even something mundane as a broom became an instrument of evil, as well as handy transportation. 
Another accessory in every witch's lair was perfect for brewing devilish potions, the cauldron. Here's a clip from the 1956 Looney Tunes episode starring Bugs Bunny and the incredibly vain and hilarious Witch Hazel. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Not bad. Cauldrons become very popular. Again, it was something that every household had in medieval ages. It was your basic cooking implement. The pointed witch's hat was a variation on a country woman's hat. And, of course, even the animals associated with witches took on a demonic character. Here's historian Libby O'Connell. It's not surprising that cats are associated with witches and Halloween. Cats can be a little enigmatic. Um, You don't really know what's going on in their head. Also, they used to hang out near the hearth and by the brooms. So they became associated with witchcraft and with Halloween. This period saw the continued influence of one of Halloween's most well-known icons, the mask, which also appeared in tandem with another unfortunate Halloween tradition, destructiveness. Beggars on All Hallows' Eve guzzled their share of alcohol and demands for food and drink became a bit threatening. Masks helped hide their identities. In Britain, they got into some very particular forms that involved dressing in costumes and going house to house to present these little plays. And at the end of the performance, they would be rewarded with food and sometimes money. By the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was undergoing enormous changes. On Halloween Day in 1517, Exactly 500 years ago, Christian revolutionary Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, attacking Catholic dogma. By launching the Protestant Reformation, Luther changed the face of Christianity and Halloween forever. He rejected all those symbols that stood between worshipers and God, including popes, priests, and saints. So, when saints went out of favor, so did All Saints Day and, of course, All Hallows' Eve. But the holiday was too popular to go away completely. In 17th century England, these customs survived only in rural areas. But thanks to a Catholic militant named Guy Fawkes, they would soon turn up in the city streets. On November 5th, 1605, Fox tried to blow up the Protestant-dominated House of Lords with 36 kegs of gunpowder. His plan was to assassinate King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Guy Fox was tried, found guilty, and hanged. And according to legend, His body was then drawn and quartered, and the pieces were thrown into a fire. The next year on the anniversary of the failed plot, and the years following, London's children and adults mocked the memory of Guy Fawkes by causing chaos in the streets, parading, begging, and building bonfires. 
Today in England, this is called Guy Fox Day, or Bonfire Night. The custom that has evolved over the centuries in England is for children to make effigies of Guy Fox, and then Guy Fox is burnt on a bonfire. They spend several weeks prior to November 5th with their dummies and asking people for a penny for the guy. It's a begging tradition, not unlike trick-or-treating in its own way. But would this pagan celebration make its way across the Atlantic to disrupt the sanctuary of the New World? For the Bible-believing Puritans of New England, the supernatural was a dark, menacing force, not a harmless superstition worthy of a yearly holiday observance. They considered Halloween too pagan and too Catholic. The Protestants, being rebels, broke away from the Church of England because they believed it was too Catholic. And they left England for the colonies for this reason, and so they didn't want to carry anything with them that had to do with Catholicism, and Halloween was something that had to do with Catholicism. By the mid-19th century, America was primed for a much darker holiday. Having endured four long years of civil war that ended in 1865 with over a half a million dead. There were so many unclaimed, unknown dead bodies that the civil war left behind that this country was obsessed with death. And mostly it was that so many of these soldiers died unknown. We don't know what happened to them. So there was a huge sense of they could come back. Maybe they're not dead. It makes perfect sense that people would tell more ghost stories. And the very first Halloween ghost stories were about people coming back home. It's at this time America's Halloween story begins. And when we come back, America and Halloween, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Halloween story, Halloween Comes to America. After the Civil War in Virginia, which hosted a large Catholic and Anglican population, the holiday thrived when Scottish and Irish immigrants brought their rural Old World Halloween customs with them, and they helped to establish even more American Halloween traditions. For the Scots, it was a little bit of a scarier night. Until fairly late, we're still talking about the appearance of bogies on Halloween. Bogies, or boogeymen, were ghosts used by adults to frighten children into good behavior, especially around Halloween time. They were said to be hiding under beds, 
tapping on windows or lurking by a gate. Halloween's signature symbol, the jack-o'-lantern, also began as a European tradition, but the prototype wasn't carved from a pumpkin. There's a great legend about a character named Jack-o'-lantern. And Jack was a troublemaker, but he was so bad, he even managed to get himself thrown out of hell, which is not an easy thing to do. But the devil did decide to have pity on him and scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to him. So Jack takes the ember and he puts it inside a hollowed out turtle. And he walks around and that becomes the legend of Jack O'Lantern. In one age-old European practice, children would carve their own jack-o'-lanterns out of turnips and light them with candles. Here's historian Donna Curtin. The first reference we have in the United States to jack-o'-lantern comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he's writing in Twice Told Tales, and he's describing someone's very tattered coat full of holes, and when you hold it up to the light, it shines like a jack-o'-lantern would. Planted in July and harvested in October, Americans substituted the big round orange pumpkin for the old world's hard little turnips. And Halloween finally had its trademark. The ghastly face of Halloween was reimagined in gruesome shades of orange and black at the turn of the 20th century. For the first time, Artists of the era brought together all things scary and linked them to Halloween. Skeletons, spiderwebs, jack-o'-lanterns, and bats. They all established the look of Halloween that we still use today. Among these icons is the white sheeted ghost. The sheet that a ghost wears derives from uh, the winding sheet, the shroud that corpses were traditionally wrapped in before burial. Horned devils came from medieval depictions of Satan and witches from witch-hunting hysteria that swept through Europe and Puritan America. Witches became very popular in the early part of the 20th century, which is why they naturally became linked to Halloween. And there's actually a change in the way we perceive witches. The witches... Uh, the 19th century were old, they had big noses and there were warts, and the witches in the 20th century are actually it's kind of attractive. It makes Halloween just a little, not only scary, but also a little naughty. But even as Halloween was dressing its old customs in new costumes, it was also creating new traditions. Bad ones. In the early 20th century, Halloween was getting out of hand. Young vandals were destroying private property and causing mischief on Halloween to the dread of the locals and police departments all over America. If Halloween were to survive, it would have to change. Schools and police departments and other civic groups consciously and very actively promoted the idea of taming Halloween. And so they started to invent all sorts of things for kids to do, to divert them. Townwide parties, costume contests, games, everything that you could think of to get the kids away from pulling tricks and into the light. Novelty companies like Denison Company helped out these civic efforts. 
Dennison published a series of Halloween booklets called Bogey Books that suggested ways of turning Halloween from a prank night into a party night. Dennison was one of the first companies that realized there was money to be made off of Halloween. They started to put their own Halloween materials out for retail sale in drugstores all over America. Dennison also sold masks and paper costumes. It was the first time costumes were specifically made and marketed for Halloween. Before that, costumes had all been homemade. Soon, other manufacturers looking to tap into the kid market for Halloween began making more durable costumes. Sears' first box costumes came around 1930, and then it it went from there. And the costumes came off of radio show characters and the funny papers. Costumes for parties, costumes for wild, town-wide parties, and for school parties and church parties. Halloween was a big social occasion. Halloween parades also helped drag the holiday out from the shadows and into the public arena. Allentown, Pennsylvania, may have been the first parade in 1905, but others soon followed. Tom's River, New Jersey in 1919, and the little town of Anoka, Minnesota in 1920. Anoka residents got tired of waking up on November 1st to find their cattle roaming on Main Street. A result of Halloween pranking, So, Anoka Civic Leaders instituted a program of Halloween parades, giveaways, and bonfires. Anoka has held its parade every year since. In fact, the city with a population of 17,000 now bills itself the Halloween capital of the world. Storyteller extraordinaire Garrison Keeler creator of the Minnesota public radio show A Prairie Home Companion, remembers what it was like growing up in the Halloween capital of the world. There was a big granite chip mosaic on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Main Street that said, Anoka, Minnesota, Halloween capital of the world, and a black witch in the center of it, so there was proof. The reason for Halloween in Anoka, the big civic part of it, the children in their costumes marching down the street, was to try to blunt or thwart um, the tradition of vandalism, mischief, which was the other side of Halloween, of course. You could toilet paper somebody's house, and I don't know if you've ever tried to get wet toilet paper out of a very tall maple tree, but uh, after you've done that, you start to believe in capital punishment. Each of these local efforts to tame Halloween worked to some extent, but what Halloween really needed was a whole new tradition, and it would soon get one. Trick-or-treat is amazingly new. People think trick-or-treat goes back for centuries, and it doesn't. Trick-or-treat is actually less than 80 years old, probably. Um, The term derives from pranking that was very widespread and destructive in America in the 20th century. And at some point, somebody came up with the brilliant idea of buying off these pranksters. 
Homeowners bribed rowdy kids with homemade treats such as popcorn balls and candy apples to avoid getting pranked or tricked. In 1939, the phrase and the custom turned up in print. Doris Hudson Moss published an article in American Home Magazine that talked about the success she had having a Halloween open house for the kids in her neighborhood. She didn't get tricked. She gave them sweets. It all worked. And when we come back, the final segment, our Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Greg Hengler and his very special reporting on Halloween, its origins, how it came to America, and now the final part of this story. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. With new customs came new treats. Now kids began getting store-bought pre-packaged candies. Mars bars, Reese's Cups, M&M's, and good old Hershey's chocolate. Candy finally killed the rowdy Halloween. And now the time was right for the reinvented holiday to hit Hollywood. Hollywood has forever made movies from the creepy to the comical. Here's the 1952 Disney short titled Trick or Treat starring Donald Duck. Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, approach their uncle's door for a Halloween treat. Uh-oh, but Donald drops a trick into the boys' pillowcases. Lit firecrackers. And then follows it up by dropping on them a bucket of water that's been dangling above their heads. In 1966, just a year following A Charlie Brown Christmas, Halloween stature zoomed off the charts when America went trick-or-treating with Charlie Brown. Here's executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials, Lee Mendelson. The whole idea of the Great Pumpkin, of course, came from the comic strip when Sparky Schultz decided that it would be very funny if one of the kids got his holidays mixed up. And uh, so that's how Linus ends up in the pumpkin patch every year. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with this bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? When you stop believing in that fellow with the red suit and the white beard. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Halloween-themed cartoons were one thing. A movie for adults with Halloween as its theme was another. 
Nobody had ever tried it before. That is, until director John Carpenter took a stab at it in 1978 with the simply titled classic, Halloween. Michael? Here's John Carpenter. The idea for calling my film Halloween came from the distributor. And when he said it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. There's never been really a Halloween-themed film. It's one of those eye-openers. Wow, why didn't I think of that years ago? What a great idea. Carpenter's $325,000 film about Michael Myers, a silent killer who escapes from a mental institution on Halloween, would spawn a franchise grossing more than $500 million. It also elevated the horror film from B-movie status to a respected genre. The slasher film also redefines speed. We learn that no matter how fast you run, Michael Myers walks faster. Carpenter's self-composed Halloween theme became recognizable apart from the movie. Here's John Carpenter and his band performing his iconic Halloween theme in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater in 2016. Horror movies will live forever. And completely by accident, Carpenter's film would also redefine our attitudes about Halloween masks. It started when the wardrobe budget forced the crew to create a mask for the villain for next to nothing. Here again is John Carpenter. The production designer ran up to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought this Captain Kirk from Star Trek mask, which didn't look anything like William Shatner, just this strange face, elongated face. But it was spray painted and, and, and fixed up a little bit. It was distorted, which is perfect. It's kind of written that way in the script, as wearing a face. The bargain basement mask and the villain behind it soon became another Halloween icon. Today, that trend has escalated to an obsession. Nail-biting knockoff film franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Halloween are inspiring growing legions of kids to dress to kill. Masks take their inspiration from pop culture, religion, politics, sports, you name it. And a growing number of faces behind them belong not to kids, but adults. Halloween has become a huge adult activity, and I I don't think that was uh, the case, say, 50, 60 years ago. But it's been, again, specifically set aside where you can be somebody that you normally aren't. Uh, You can get behind a mask, you can wear clothes you would never wear during the rest of the year, uh, and people enjoy these get those children who are now growing up and they become very nostalgic for Halloween. So Halloween shifts again, starts to become more of an adult holiday. 50 years ago, when you were too old to trick or treat, you probably had to stay home and hand out candy. There was nothing else for you to do. Now there is a vast and imaginative haunted house industry just for you. And there's something like 4,000 haunted houses in the United States every year. Here again is John Carpenter. I loved haunted houses. 
fascinated me. They terrified me as a kid. But haunted houses aren't the only activity for adults on Halloween. From the two million people attending New York City's Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to the half a million attending West Hollywood's Halloween Carnival, the holiday takes a walk on the wild and naughty side. If you look at the costumes that are sold to adults these days, the costumes for women are all kind of borderline prostitute costumes. You know, the sexy nurse, the sexy maid, the sexy anything. Clearly, a lot of women want to have a very sexy side of them, and it's only on Halloween that they bring it out. Maybe, you know, they could do a little more often. Not surprisingly, alcohol plays a huge role in Halloween's popularity. So much so that by the 1990s, beer sales for Halloween surpassed both the Super Bowl and St. Patrick's Day. Halloween's popularity is also due to the fact that it embodies the American obsession with self-transformation, being who you aren't or who you would like to be. Trick-or-treaters remain on high alert today. And just as Halloween has scared kids for years, Halloween scares parents too. They fear sending their kids out into a hostile world of trick-or-treats full of poisoned candy and razor blade riddled apples. Reynoldsburg police confirm it was a razor blade found in a piece of candy. They're recommending you spread out all of your children's candy and inspect each piece. I grew up hearing about razor blades and apples myself. And it's clearly what we would call a contemporary legend. Uh, another term is urban legend. There's a great societal unease about this idea that we're telling our kids to go take candy from strangers. So there's a lot of stories about razor blades and candied apples and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and parents every year get very, very worried about it. Did razor blades and apples ever happen? Uh, I believe there are a couple of cases, but of course you can ask which came first, you know, the story or the actions. Razor blades and apples, jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes. They make up the legends, the texture of the Halloween we know. Today, Halloween wears many masks, yet, it still remains the domain of kids. When you're a kid, you had one night a year where you were in charge, you got to dress up, you got to be something that you usually weren't, and you kind of even got paid for the privilege of this. It was an amazing holiday. Look closely, and you will see Halloween is a showcase for everything the human race fears. Through the centuries, we've learned to live and tame that which scares us most. It's invigorating, it's sensual, there's a freedom to it that is very, very enjoyable. At the same time, it's ritualized. You can do this at a certain time, a certain place. Some of the images of Halloween, some of the decorations, if people would have put them out at any other time of the year, their neighbors would call the police. But at Halloween, you're allowed to take these very disturbing kinds of ideas and deal with them directly. There's a great liberation, a great sense of freedom to that. It is on this day of freedom that Americans turn their fears into fun. I'm Greg Hengler. And we here at Our American Stories would like to wish you and yours a very happy and safe Halloween. And great job as always on that, Greg. And my favorite part of the art, I'd read Hawthorne and I was an American lit major. I did not know he introduced the jack-o'-lantern into America. 
Again, thanks for those details, Greg. A lot of work goes into pieces like this. And you can hear all that we do here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And all month in October is Infant Loss Month. It was declared in 1988 by President Ronald Reagan and honors the lives lost through miscarriage, stillborn birth, sudden infant death syndrome, and other tragedies. And all month long, we bring stories from you about your loss and your grief. This story comes from a father, Jeremy Lott, and this is the eulogy he delivered at his church for his baby girl, Cecilia. How do you eulogize a girl who never lived? She never crawled, walked, spoke, cried. We don't even have honest dates for the tombstone since that clock starts at birth. By the time of her delivery, my daughter had left the building start with her full name, which she would have hated at times because children tease, Cecilia Little Lot. Cecilia is perfectly lovely, so of course my wife Ange came up with it, but that middle name would have dogged her. Have a look at her parents with their wide frames and my truly enormous head. There's no way our little girl would have been little for long. That part of her name would have been a running joke like a bouncer named Tiny. The headstone isn't ready yet because those take time. Here is what will eventually be inscribed in granite for future generations to puzzle over. She danced an Irish jig and was a peekaboo champion. There are a couple of stories there. Many philosophers have insisted that every new human is a blank slate, a tabula rasa, but mothers have always known better. They know that each of their children has a distinct personality that they see manifest even in the womb. Of the three brothers' lot, I was the one who was active at all hours. I rarely slept in utero or after to my mother's great consternation. My cousin Jenny recently had a healthy baby boy named Aiden. In the womb, he hated intrusions on his face by any but his mother. When the doctor put sensors on her belly to get readings, he targeted and successfully kicked them off. I see soccer in his future. And our little girl, Cecilia, loved to dance. We discovered this when we were en route to her fatal diagnosis at Swedish Hospital in Seattle. 
We made some stops along the way, including one in Anacortes. On a whim, we went uh, to a night of Irish music there. She was only 16 weeks old, and yet Ange discovered she was kicking and more or less in time to the beat. She loved moving her long legs when she heard Irish music. She also grooved to Latin music. And you know she was a true Washingtonian because she seemed to appreciate grunge while bad 80s soft rock left her cold. She responded to other sounds as well. Ange thinks she might have been shy or perhaps intently curious. When there were familiar voices around here, she would be active. In the presence of new voices, she would pipe down and listen. She knew her father's voice. When I read books out loud to Ange, she kicked. We attended a conference, and Cecilia was getting a little rowdy up in there. So I leaned into my wife's belly and said, Knock it off, kid. She surprised both of us by doing just that. But you probably want to know about the peekaboo, right? Ultrasound is an amazing technology. We see by way of sound waves and reconstructions on a screen. We could see evidence of a pregnancy before, but now we can see life in the womb. It's right there on the monitor. You, you, can, you can almost touch it. One of the things on that monitor that struck many viewers about Cecilia is, is what she did with her hands. She did intelligent things and playful things. She folded and steepled her fingers as if in thought or prayer, and she liked to put her hands in front of her eyes and take them away. As you looked at her, she did this peekaboo routine so often that it sometimes made it hard for us to get a good look at her. When she was still with us, we shared Cecilia's story with people. The great interest and support in money and prayer and in so many other forms was surprising. Here you have this little girl who would not live for much longer. She would never grow up and make her mark on the world. She might not even see daylight. But people wanted to know about her. They wanted to help in any way that they could. As you'll see from the children's books on the table to be donated to the library in her name, they wanted to commemorate her. Like so many other things about this pregnancy, Cecilia's end surprised me. I had assumed that she faded away. But, like philosophers, we writers imagine, and mothers know better. Ange tells me it was a bang, not a whimper. As so many things failed her, Cecilia gathered up all of her strength and kicked really hard in protest one last time. It was the internal equivalent of, uh, you know, that one left a mark. And after that, she was gone. Right now, the news of her ending fills me with great, unimaginable sorrow. But I hope that will eventually give way to fatherly pride. Of course, no daughter of ours would ever go quietly into that good night. She was fierce. And we loved her fiercely. And that's all we could do. Thank you for coming. And Jeremy, thank you for reading that. You, your bride, Ange, your baby girl, Cecilia. We can just see her playing peekaboo, doing that Irish jig. And by the way, you can share your stories with us at ouramericannetwork.org. A eulogy, a reflection. We'll play it. We promise. Jeremy Lott's story, his bride Angie's story, 
is baby girl Cecilia's story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Marriage on the Mind series with our marriage coach, Deb Olniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and also serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, you can write to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and she'll make sure to get back to you within 24 hours. And today's Marriage on the Mind story is from Emily Harden, who shared her marriage story in the New York Times recently. Her piece was titled, I Planned My Wedding in Five Days, You Could Too. And Emily graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. It was the day before my wedding, and I literally did not have a dress. In 24 hours, all my friends and family would be gathering in the Empire Ballroom. And at this point, my something borrowed was an entire church outfit from my best friend's closet. Was I concerned? Not really, actually. I decided to throw a Hail Mary at my mom and asked if she would make a skirt to match a $10 top I had found at the mall. She did, and it was lovely absolutely lovely but my wedding dress was just one of many things I was not concerned about for example five days earlier which was a Thursday which also happened to be New Year's Eve I was on the phone with the woman who had become my banquet coordinator Uh, The conversation took place about an hour after I got officially engaged as Rob and I were hiking in the hills of Sedona in Arizona. The conversation went like this. Her. (coughs) Excuse me, you are getting married in five days and you are just calling me now? Me. Well, I actually think I'm being quite generous. I just got engaged an hour ago, and you are my very first call. I figured I should work out some logistics before texting everyone. And no, I am not pregnant. Just to make that clear. Her. Well, that is unusual. How many people are you expecting? Me. Um, probably a hundred. Her. (laughs) 
100 people with five days notice? Me. People do it for funerals all the time. If I underestimate, we will have leftovers. If I overestimate, I'll just make my family eat last. Her. I am not sure how to process this. Okay, let's talk about flowers. Me. <laughs> no, thank you. Her. No flowers? Me. The room is beautiful enough. I don't think anyone will notice. It seems really wasteful. Her. Uh, how about tablecloths and napkin colors? Me. Just whatever is cheapest and most convenient. I don't really care. Her. You don't have colors? Me. Well, um, I guess the only suit my fiance has right now is navy. And he has a pink tie. Everything else is in storage, so I guess we'll go with that for my wedding colors. Navy and pink. Her. Is this a joke? My entire luncheon was planned in an hour. Because Rob Reading, my now husband, and I knew each other for four years and had been dating over the past year, we knew we wanted to spend eternity together. In fact, as a side note, we already had met with our bishops for pre-marriage approval, but had not become officially engaged. And because my husband's maritime work and a transfer from London to the Bay Area, along with me working on the Little Sisters of the Poor Supreme Court case, we figured we had two options in the moment after his proposal. We could get married in a week, or get married in a year. We eagerly decided it was T minus five days to put my theory to the test. So let's people ask, why, why five days? Well, long ago, I became convinced that modern weddings were unnecessarily burdensome. My theory was you could plan a beautiful wedding in a week. The second call I made that day in the desert was to my parents, who told me their prayers were answered. And the third call I made that afternoon was to the Salt Lake Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wasn't exactly concerned about getting a slot at the temple because Tuesday mornings isn't exactly prime time for weddings. So at this point, it was still day one of planning, and I already had my ceremony and my reception site secured. Wedding invitations were sent out a few hours later via text message with a collage of selfies saying, would love to have you come if you can make it. No gifts, just love. I then called in favors from best friends to do photos and hair and makeup and I pulled strings to get performers and an MC for the event. So as the last of six children to get married, not to mention the fact that I've had 13 foster siblings, my parents were not complaining. In addition, the small farm town that I grew up in, literally there were more cows than humans, um, the town was rejoicing that the two of us in our 30s and 40s that we were getting married at all. Okay, to be sure, I acknowledge that five days notice was inconvenient and there were a few people who couldn't make it. But whether it is five days or five years, it would have been inconvenient and there would have been those who would have missed it. 
And surprisingly, there were only a handful of close friends who couldn't make it, which is the same rate as any wedding. And some of the best parts, the total planning time, 26 hours, and that includes me shopping for my dress, and the total cost, $4,500. The result on January 5th, 2016 was the perfect wedding day. People commented that it couldn't have been more lovely if I had an entire year to plan it. And guess what? Not a single person noticed that we didn't have flowers. In fact, I've even polled a lot of the people at my wedding to ask, hey, did you notice? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't notice you didn't have flowers. Side note. So, as my mother Marilyn said, hallelujah. Hallelujah for putting the relationship above the wedding. Hallelujah for not worrying about complicated logistics. And hallelujah for not having enough time to change your mind. Thank you, Mother. Well, Ra kept saying to me throughout the five-day process, what do you want me to do? And I kept telling him there wasn't anything for him to do. And here's why. With each social expectation for weddings, I asked myself two questions. One, does this achieve the goal of making people at my wedding feel loved and appreciated for the role they played in my life? Or two, will it help strengthen my marriage and the promises that we made to each other? If the answer was no, I didn't waste any more time. I now appreciate applying this to other areas of my life. Now that we're married, I ask myself, is where we go to dinner eternally significant? If not, why argue over it? Or do party favors for the barbecue you're giving matter? Probably not. I say, enjoy the path of least resistance. If it truly represents the most important elements of your life and your relationship, then put time and put energy and put creativity into it. But if not, do yourself a favor and skip the stress. You know, and in all this, Rob also saw the beauty in our very short engagement and the microburst planning period. He said, the longer it plays out, the longer the nuisance. It would have just been an obstacle to starting our life, so why wait? So, you know what? I may not have a $200 gravy boat, and I may have worn an 888 Walmart wedding ring that eventually turned my finger green, but our flowerless navy and pink wedding set the perfect precedent for married life. Elegantly simple. And thank you, Emily, for that. And when we come back, we will be joined by Deb Wolniak to talk about weddings, stress, and so much more. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Emily Hardman's story from the New York Times. I plan my wedding in five days. You could, too.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to our Marriage on the Mind segment. And joining us, as always, is Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach. And Deb, what a great story to hear, and what a, what a fresh and wonderful voice. I almost want to have Emily on a couple of times a year and just play this so anyone going through the tumult of a wedding plan uh, can just maybe just ditch it. Uh, talk about uh, your first impressions when you heard this. Well, it is refreshing. That's the key word there because so many couples get tied up in knots, literally, <laughs> about planning a wedding that is there to, you know, maybe it's been a dream of somebody for a long time, but ultimately when that wedding is done and they're spending an average of 35000 on a wedding now in America. Um, Deb, no, hold on a second, Deb. You said 35000 is the yeah. average? Yes, that's the average. It does include our big cities like New York at 78, Chicago at 60, and L.A. at 44. But, you know, the reality is most couples are spending around ten grand. That is the goal. But even then, for some folks, that is a huge stretch. And to have couples that are having 200 guests or so, that is a big responsibility. And let me tell you, when that's done and the honeymoon's over, your reality is going to set in. Um, this is a commitment I made for the rest of my life. And what do I have to show from wedding? Some awesome pictures, some great memories. Absolutely. Those are all things that are important. But what did you do financially that's going to set you ahead or back at the starting line of your marriage? And, and Deb, you know, coming into the marriage, this first crisis point, I actually think the wedding is the first crisis point. And so if you two learn how to negotiate through that crisis point, my wife and I did it fast like this. We did it cheap because we just said we are not incurring debt to go yeah. into the future of our life. And as, you, as we've talked about, Deb, finances is one of the key strains on a marriage. What oh. a crazy way and what a crazy precedent to set for your marriage. How are you going to handle other crisis points? The first house comes up. You want to keep up with the Joneses. So you get a house you can't afford, so on and so forth. So right. talk about, as a marriage coach, how this is an opportunity for a good coach uh, to come between a couple and have them think about the long view of marriage and these other crisis financial points that come. Because from a car to a house and to vacations, where right. and how we spend our money on those three things can right. either lead to financial ruin or to financial health. And we know what happens to marriages that are financially healthy. They have a right. better shot. Yes. They do, and that you're on the same page for those things. So I'm going to challenge folks that are listening to, hey, yes, have a designer wedding, one that fits your pocketbook, your lifestyle, and your goals. That's an important lesson. But also have a designer marriage. So many people go into the act of getting married that they don't consider how their relationship stage is at and really knowing where the other person is at when you make that, let's face it, business decision for life. You would not go into a partnership with a business without checking out the other person's motives and goals first and to know where that other per person is at and that you're on the same page. Why would you go into a lifelong commitment for marriage and not check those things out? I believe there's a lot of people that have a great, great love for each other that don't take the time to do the double checks before they walk down the aisle. And don't you want to know that you know that you know why you're marrying that person? The good, the bad, and the ugly. The things that really help us identify, none of us are perfect. But I am willing and ready 
to make that commitment to that individual come hell or high water because this is my person that I'm going to team with for the rest of my life. And I love this person. Let's not forget about that. The second you throw the wedding ring, engagement ring, I'm sorry, on your finger is the second that most couples turn off the relationship building power and go into action mode. I got to get this thing and this and this. And you'll see it with a lot of brides. They just go into the zone sometimes with their their mothers that they just get so involved in the wedding. They forget about the relationship. They come to the day and that bride is on one end of the aisle or the you know, wherever you're getting married at, and the groom's at the other, and she's going or he's going, oh, my gosh, I hope this works. And if you think you're thinking that right now and you're planning your wedding, you need to stop and make sure you have a coach that can come alongside you and do some of that premarital coaching that is so, so important. I will always say prepare and enrich is one of the number one ways in 30 minutes that you can find out where your strength areas are and where your challenge areas are so you as a couple can go through this lesson plan of six weeks and know where you're at, know exactly how you're going to use the tools on relationship wellness to build your relationship so you can have the relationship everybody else envies because they want the same thing too, whether they tell you or not. It's not about the car you drive or the house that you have or 2.5 kids. It is about a solid relationship that you can come home to and feel that safety and warmth and love. And that is something we all crave. And no dollar is going to get you there. You have to work on it yourself. And Deb, you talk a little bit about, in our notes, about the social media aspect of this and how appearances versus reality is intruding into all of our lives. And let's face it, nobody puts a, a bad experience on Facebook. And everybody's right. looking to see if they can outdo or outgame the next person on social media. And so in some respects, costs have probably amped up because people are competing against one another for the superior uh-huh. wedding, the better photo, the better picture. This actually harms relationships. I, I can't wait to see the 10-year and 20-year studies of Facebook on human psychology. But talk about how it might affect and disrupt a marriage. I'll give you one very good example why this came up. I was told the other, I have not seen this footage, but there was a couple that was getting engaged, and the gentleman was so nice to be able to maybe have his friend from the bushes take and take pictures and make sure the video was ready so they could put that up on Facebook afterward. And as he got down on one knee and asked this girl to marry him, the first thing she said, is there a camera? Is there a video? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there is. Oh, that's great. Um, can we redo this? I mean, she took the moment away from him, and he was so patient with her. They did it 30 times. 30. Why? Because they wanted that perfect moment. But the crazy thing is they'll never get it because that moment was taken away by image. And I'm going to tell you what. I know a lot of people are going with that right now because they want to outdo their friends. You have nothing when you do that. Nothing. People do not understand what love is anymore. They don't understand relationship. They're getting into that social media and the front, what you're wearing, what you're doing, where you're going, takes takes precedence over true relationship. And part of that is intimacy and vulnerability. If you cannot be truly honest with your future spouse or your spouse, you need to get help to run the marathon that marriage is. It's not a sprint. It's not a photo. It's not a video. It is about you and your partner with the raw naked truth 
on the fact that you have to grow your relationship and you are the only two that can do it. That's it. It's if a, you don't know what that means, you have a problem. You need to get some help. It's so true, Deb. And by the way, I was at a, a Tom Petty concert about a month ago, and, and Jesse was at the same show. And it was so irritating. My wife and I are finally like, there's couples all around us, and they're holding, the th- they're holding up their camera. And I'm going, can you just watch a concert? Can you just experience something together? Do you have to be in it? And post it to your friends how lucky you are and how unlucky they are. It's real. It's it's crazy, Deb, that the, what people are doing with their own lives. They're turning their own lives into movies. And look right. at movie stars' lives. It doesn't end well. So why right. do you want this kind of fame, Deb? We love the we love the coaching. Thanks for that note. And as always, thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to what you have next week for us. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. Our marriage coach. And she also happens to serve on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. This has been her life's work, and she's our marriage coach here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love music here on the show and we love history and that's why this is our favorite segment and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, 1966, the Supremes became the first female group to have a number one album on the charts with the Supremes a go-go, knocking the Beatles revolver from the top of the charts. The Supremes had 12 number one hits and 33 in the top 40 and were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988. In the same year of 1966, the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations made its debut on the U.S. Singles Chart. Written by Brian Wilson and Mike Love, the track was recorded over six weeks in four different Los Angeles studios at a cost of over $16,000. Quite a bit of a chunk of change in the 1960s. The recording engineer would later say that the last take sounded exactly like the first six months earlier. The record would reach number one in the U.S. charts in December of 1966. In 1996, it was announced that the Beatles were now bigger than the Beatles. 
The statement was based on sales for that year, having sold 6 million albums from their back catalog and a combined total of 13 million copies of The Beatles Anthology 1 and The Beatles Anthology 2. With the release of the Beatles Anthology 3 just a week away, it was anticipated that the total Beatles album sales for 1996 would exceed 20 million. A poll showed 41% of sales were to teenagers who were not born when the Beatles officially called it quits in 1970. And speaking of the Beatles, in 2008, a homeless man claimed a $2,500 reward by returning a waxwork head of ex-Beatle Sir Paul McCartney, which had been left on a train. Homeless man thought it was a Halloween mask and had been using it as a pillow before realizing what it was. The wax model sold the following week for $7,000 at auction. And this week in music history, 1963, Bob Dylan recorded The Times They Are a Changing at Columbia Recording Studios in New York City. Come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone if your time to you is worth saving then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are changing Writers and critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing and in 1966, the Jimi Hendrix Experience recorded their first single, Hey Joe, in London. Hey Joe, where you going with that gun of yours? Hey Joe, I said, where you going with that gun of your hand? But this is not a Hendrix original, it's actually a cover. The earliest known commercial recording of the song is the late 1965 single by the Los Angeles garage band known as The Leaves. Take a listen. This week in music history, 1956, Dwight Yoakam, country singer, actor, and film director, who is most famous for his pioneering country music, which has sold over 25 million records with five Billboard number one albums, 12 gold albums, and nine platinum albums. A Thousand Miles from Nowhere was written and recorded by Dwight and released in June of 1993. It went to number two as the second single from the album of this time. I got heartache. 
1987, Michael Jackson started a two-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with Bad. The music video for Bad was directed by Martin Scorsese and co-starred one of the first appearances of Wesley Snipes. It was released in late 1987. And in 1959, born this week in music history, is Weird Al Yankovic, who was famous for his parodies of songs like Michael Jackson's Bad, just replaced Bad with Fat. The video for this parody song won a Grammy Award for Best Concept Music Video in 1988. And in 1964, the Rolling Stones appeared for the first time on the Ed Sullivan Show from New York. Performing around and around in Time is on My Side, a riot broke out in the studio, prompting Sullivan's infamous quote, I promise you they'll never be back on our show again. However, the Rolling Stones went on to make a further five appearances on Sullivan's show between 65 and 69. In 1986, Bon Jovi went number one with his album Slippery When Wet, featured two number one singles, You Give Love a Bad Name and Living on a Prayer. The album went on to sell over 8 million copies worldwide. And in 1992, Roger Miller died of lung and throat cancer in Los Angeles. He scored the 1965 hit single King of the Road. Trailer for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents no phone, no pool, no pets. Ain't got no cigarettes. Ah, oh, but two hours of pushing broom buys a eight by twelve four bit room. I'm a man of means, by no means. King of the road. And born this week in 1967, Scott Weiland, vocals, Stone Temple Pilots, and Velvet Revolver. Interstate Love Song reached number one on the rock chart in September of 1994. In 2009, it was named the 58th best hard rock song of all time by VH1. The song stayed at number one for 15 weeks. Cry. Reply. 
1972, Stevie Wonder released his 15th studio album, Talking Book. The album's first track, You Are the Sunshine of My Life, was a U.S. number one hit on the Billboard charts. It also earned Wonder his first Grammy Award. The album also featured a guest appearance of guitarist Jeff Beck on the track, Superstition. And that's This Week in Music History. This is Our American Stories. Seven years.